Welcome to Interacting Minds, a podcast on interdisciplinary research. My name is Savannah Schulz, and in this episode, I'm joined by Amos Blanton, constructivist designer, educator, and researcher, to talk about tinkering, play, and what adjacent possibilities might lie within collective creativity experiences. Welcome, Amos. I'm so glad you're joining us today. Thanks. It's good to be here. We met at the IMC. We can already can maybe share that. Um, but you have a long past in different practitioner-based work. So let's take a step back first before we jump into your projects and what you're doing. Um, to the year 2008, you're a family counselor <laughs> um, and you're going on the big leap of joining the Scratch community at MIT Media Lab. What happened back then? <laughs> Yeah, so around that time, I had been studying humanistic psychotherapy, and I um, was actually working as a family counselor for several years before that. And uh, my wife and I moved to the Boston area, and um, I made friends with Jay Silver, who's kind of known today as one of the co-inventors of Makey Makey, which is a fairly fairly popular, I guess you'd say, constructionist tool that a lot of people have encountered. Um and basically through a random encounter, he, he was talking and working a lot at the time on the Scratch project. And he said, you know, you seem to have a lot of knowledge about how groups interact. And we are creating an online community right now around a programming language called Scratch. And um, we might need somebody with some of your expertise to think about it with us. So I sort of gradually got more and more involved in that, ended up kind of being the sort of the mayor of the Scratch online community for several years um, which was great because it combined a lot of my interests in both in creativity and uh, and also how people interact, but also uh, around technology. I had been kind of interested in open source software for a long time before that, even when I was a, uh, a humanistic psychotherapist. So it gave me an opportunity to kind of work on, um, uh, think about creativity uh, with a lot of great people on a really an amazing project, actually. And it sort of fit aligned with um, some values that, that Jay and I shared and also many of the people at the Lifelong Kindergarten Group at MIT Media Lab shared, which were around um, educational approaches that really invite um, children to, to be expressive and to be creative and to learn through that process of, of making something new and um, finding out how it works in the world. So how does that look like on Scratch? Yeah, so Scratch is a, is sort of, most people think of it still as a programming language, although Mitch Resnick has started to talk about it as the biggest community um, of online programmers, uh, really, especially with children in the world. And um, the way it worked at the time was really kind of unknown because, you know, back in 2009, online communities were kind of a radical new thing in a lot of ways. <laughs> Um, so we didn't really know exactly what we were doing, but we were kind of winging it. But but we knew pretty soon early on that, that really what made people create in this online community, the kinds of projects that we were interested in, um, depended a lot on people feeling safe and comfortable, um, being able to try out new ideas together and see how they might fly. And then very soon it became clear that a lot of the really interesting work was happening in these sub-communities on Scratch. So... Scratch is a programming language you can make animations or you can make games or anything you can really imagine with it. And, um, you know, in this community, as we started out, we saw especially a lot of people into, for example, Warrior Cats, which is a, a series of books that actually my son is really into right now. 
And so they would be, you know, all sharing this collective knowledge of warrior cats, this this sort of fictional world. Um, but rather than just sort of be fans and talk about it, they would actually start to create new characters, new cats that would fit into the warrior cats world. They'd create new, even role-playing games and things along those lines. And this turned out to be kind of the engine of a lot of the creative dynamics um, that we loved on Scratch, of people making new projects and then getting excited. And it tended to do this really amazing effect of, of, you know, when you're creating a Scratch project, you might have an idea of what's your goal or what it is that you want to create. But the sub-community, the group of friends that you're sharing this project with, they're the ones that kind of evolve and kind of keep that idea, that goal constantly moving. And so, for example, if you're making a game, uh, you might make a game and release it. Other people say, this is cool. Maybe you should add this on there. And the vision of what makes a great game also moves in addition to what it is that you're creating. And that really was what got me thinking first about collective creativity is that this group has a kind of intelligence of its own in a way um, so that the, that, that the creative output is always a moving target. And a lot of people have talked about this idea. Brian Eno um, calls it genius. It's sort of the genius of the scene. So he points out that, you know, of course, a lot of people who are great musicians, et cetera, in the 60s and 70s got credit for the creativity there. But really, he, he said they were kind of articulating the genius of the whole scene, of what everyone was talking about. And, and we saw that same kind of effect happening in Scratch. And that was really fascinating and great to be a part of because I think we were very successful at, um, at maintaining it as a community where these ideas could emerge and people get really excited about them and it drives a lot of really great participation. And how people did that is, um, I only like occasionally have interacted with the platform so you can remake a project so you can copy and, and build from there. Yeah, that's right. So if you see a game that you like, so maybe somebody's made a game, um, involving penguins and you like penguins, you might have found it in a search on Scratch, you can very easily um, open up that game and see all of the code inside that makes it work. And so that's the first kind of a, I guess you'd say a prerequisite is that that it's all open source. You can see the guts of anything. But then you might want to say, well, penguins are cool, but I really like foxes. So what I want to do is change this main character in this game from a penguin to a fox. Well, if you have access to all the source code and the images, it's very easy for you to kind of hack in your own thing. And then you know, you're essentially making a remix or a fork of that project. And that's, we found a really great way to engage people. Because I think a, people can sometimes be interested in starting from scratch with a programming language. Uh, and what I mean by that is like from the beginning, from zero, from the hello world. But oftentimes we find more people are interested in starting from an existing project and then making modifications. And in fact, Jay Silver, that, that guy I mentioned earlier, is, is working on a project right now, which is all about remixing, just because it's such a, a great pathway into kids learning how to be creative. So there's a lot about iteration. Is this also where you discovered kind of the world of tinkering, or was that later? Yeah, so tinkering is really kind of tied in closely with constructionist learning um, theory, which is really what the, the theoretical foundation for Scratch in many ways. So Mitch Resnick studied with Seymour Papert, um, and Scratch in many ways is kind of an outgrowth of his theory in some ways. And tinkering, I guess you would say, is, is uh, maybe a slight fork, but it really shares most of the core values. Tinkering has largely been popularized by the Tinkering Studio at the Exploratorium in San Francisco, which is a really famous science museum. And rather than focusing mostly in the programming world, where Mitch Resnick's work and Lifelong Kindergarten Group, group uh, does most of their work, the tinkering people have thought a lot about, for example, 
uh, chain reactions, or they might make scribbling machines that involve people's having a first encounter with motors and pens and different kinds of recycled materials to make a little kind of drawing robot that will move around in different positions and, and create something new. And through that kind of process of tinkering, um, the idea is that you get a, a kind of a different, more intuitive sense of these different kinds of technologies of the way that different um, elements of something you're working with uh, mix together. And it really has also become kind of a, articulated as a, a pedagogical approach to understanding things. Like there's often, often it's contrasted with planning in the sense that you might plan something out, you know, step one, two, three, four, five, six, et cetera, and then you're done. Well, tinkering says, actually, you may not exactly know everything that you need at the very beginning to make a plan like that that's exhaustive. So it's an approach that values a kind of an uh, approach of inquiry that you, okay, well, I'll just make a prototype right now and try this, see how it goes. And then maybe as I see what it does and get that feedback, I kind of change my vision for, for what I want this to do. And then I go in a different direction. And if a goal emerges, it kind of comes out of that exploratory process. And so, yeah, I was definitely excited about tinkering in, in many ways, because while I, I do love programming, um, I really want to create more opportunities for kids to have the tinkering experience, both to play around and have fun, but also to understand that tinkering is a mode of inquiry that I think is important. And so I think it's based on Simon Pop, but if I'm recollecting right here. But um, so Mitch Resnick in his book on lifelong kindergarten talks about some key design principles. Yeah. It's this idea of the visual metaphor of the room. So low floors, high ceilings. And he added white walls, and I think the original idea is in Papad, but he's extended it for the walls. That's right. Yeah. What are those metaphors about? So, yeah. so how do you use them in tinkering? Yeah, well, constructionist learning theory really puts a, a high value, you know, on on open-ended problems where people are making something new that that maybe is integrating some of their interests in different ways. And so it's about really developing tools. And Scratch, I would say, is very much a toolkit, right? So it's it's made to be easy for you to kind of have an encounter with this tile-based graphical programming language. And very, very quickly, we want it to be possible for you to do something that's aligned with your interests. So the examples I gave before matter. And so since those are really high, pri high priorities, the, the, the language of design that has evolved around creating tools for constructionist learning um, puts a big, big focus on being easy to get started. And that's where the low floor comes in. So if you think about like you're encountering a tool for the first time, it should be very easy to kind of climb up onto that platform. It's got a low floor. The very opposite would be, say, the C++ programming language, which is incredibly opaque, extremely difficult. You have to study a lot before you can really do very much. That would be what you'd call a very high floor. And then the high ceiling, though, that means that, so even though Scratch, for example, has a low floor and you can get quickly, easily get started, the kind of realm of possible things that you can create can get extremely complex. And that's where the high ceiling comes in. So within this room that you've kind of climbed up into with this low floor and started tinkering and making something new, um, there should be really, really complex things that, are, that you can make, almost infinite possibilities. So... For example, you'll see the first project that a lot of people make on Scratch is just sort of, hi, my name is so-and-so, hello. Um, but then there's also incredibly complex projects like entire operating systems made in Scratch where you can actually load software onto. So that means it's a high ceiling. And the wide walls just refers to the idea that the tool should be able to be used 
for many, many different kinds of projects. So if you're really into penguins, the example I used before, <laughs> you can jump in there and make something with penguins. But if you're super into games and hardcore 3D stuff, you should be able to play with some of that as, as well. Maybe not full 3D, but you can kind of simulate <laughs> it a little bit. Um, so a really, really broad diversity of interests of people with you know different backgrounds and curiosities, they can all use this tool to make something that's meaningful for them. So it's applicable to a wide audience of learners in all ages. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the, the really the, the value proposition about the learning that happens as you construct this program or as you tinker with something is that it connects to something that you care about. And so that's a crucial idea. And that's where the wide walls really helps because it's sort of easy to find something that you think might be fun to throw into a scratch project. And uh, you were actually thrown into your own little white walls project. So you ended your role at Scratch and you took a plane to Denmark with your family and you joined the Lego Foundation to do, I guess, similar things, but in a physical space and thinking about it differently. Yeah, that's right. So so I loved doing the work with Scratch, but I, I was really interested in kind of doing hands-on things with hands-on activities where there are physical materials primarily and maybe programming fit sort of um, comes into it as well, but it's not necessarily just the only central idea. So yeah, in 2015, my family and I moved to Denmark uh, and I took a position at the Lego Foundation where primarily what I started working on that first year was the design of learning through play activities in the Lego house. Lego house, for those of you who don't know, it's, um, it's, it's sort of like a children's museum, very much a hands-on kind of museum uh, in Billund, which is the, the capital of Lego, uh, where you can go and you can do several different activities that all involve uh, being creative with Lego bricks, sometimes with technology as well. And Really, it was the Lego idea that kind of um, drew me to this, to that kind of context, because, I, of course, I always loved Lego bricks. And in many ways, when you talk about a low floor, there's nothing better than the Lego brick as an example, right? Because you you take two of these bricks and you snap them together and now you understand, you know, everything you need to know to make the Taj Mahal. It's like it's all right in there with those first two bricks. So I worked on that project for a while, and then I ended up creating a, a kind of a small scale design studio and a research atelier called the Lego Idea Studio, where we were developing with technology um, different kinds of open-ended play materials around the Lego Idea, which essentially is about um, with the Lego bricks, we can build anything we can possibly imagine, um, but yet we can reconfigure them into a new idea anytime that we want. That's really the core kind of proposition of the Lego Idea. So we were exploring new technologies in collaboration with um, Uh, Reggio Emilia and the Reggio Children Foundation and the Tinkering Studio at the Exploratorium and the Lifelong Kindergarten Group to explore what are the new kinds of possibilities we can think about that are in that spirit of the Lego bricks, but actually involve other technologies, again, made with a very low floor and wide walls and a high ceiling. And since this is a question that has come up a lot, I think, when we talked about cranky contraptions with another of those kind of workshop ideas you had, what is the learning that happens in those situations? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, a lot of the learning that that we're interested in is not so much about re remembering declarative information, which I think is is still in many ways when you when you scratch the surface and you ask people what they think learning is, often it's like, well, you know, two plus two is four, or uh, you know, the capital of Ohio is whatever Akron or what so have you. Factual knowledge, exactly. In a very traditional way, yeah. Yeah, and and this is much more about well, how do you understand um, procedurally how to go about um, you know creating a project, imagining some sort of project, bringing it into some sort of prototype phase, 
And then debugging it, really, and kind of going through a process of exploring, okay, what will make this project better, reflecting on where it is right now, and figuring out how to make it, I guess you'd say, um, your own most meaningful project that you can. And the learning that happens around that then is as much about this process, I think, as it is about any kind of you know, knowledge that you, that you encounter in this in, along the way. So to talk a little bit about a project that I'm, that I'm working on now, actually, is called Playing with the Sun. It's really sort of a provocation or a, a collection of activities. Um, I'm working a lot with these drawing machines that involve solar energy. So the idea is that you have a little machine that we give you as a starting point. It has no batteries at all, but it has a solar panel and a motor and something that's called a solar engine, which basically just stores up a little bit of solar energy at a time until it gets enough to, to sort of turn that motor and if the sun is really bright, of course, it turns faster. And if it's not so bright, it turns a little bit slower. So as we provide that kind of base model starting point for this exploration, for this tinkering exploration, we're, we're designing it so that people can begin to sort of see, well, what does this thing draw as I, as I play around with it? And maybe they make a change. Maybe they move the pen to a different location. Or maybe they even take a mirror and try to shine some more light onto this. Um, so any of these kinds of early exploratory moves then are ways to sort of play with something the same way that we would say, you know, I don't really know how this software works, this new, like, let's say I'm into music. How does this music software work? Well, you could take a tutorial and that might be helpful, but you could also just play with it. You could sort of see what does it do if I push this button or if I make this sound or if I record it this way. And the same idea really applies to the solar drawing machine is we want to make a toolkit that allows you to sort of see, well, what if I face it directly towards the sun? Is it faster? Is it slower? Or what if I set up six mirrors all around it like that? Will it go really fast or what will happen? And this sort of process of following your inquiry based on whatever you happen to have in terms of ideas at that moment is, I think, an important skill. And that's really the, the I'd say, the core value proposition of what we're offering. You will, of course, learn in the process about how solar panels work and you'll learn about solar engines and motors and stall links and all kinds of other different um, complex ideas. But really, I see those as more kind of things that you pick up along the way while you're trying to clarify your vision. In some ways, you could say that, that we're imagining a world where everyone is becoming a designer. Everyone can use these tools to make something meaningful for them. And, uh, and I think that's where I see a lot of the value and a lot of my friends see the value too. And this um, example of the solar machines is a glimpse into your work as a PhD student right now and yeah. looking into the um, collective creativity of us all that you also noticed in Scratch already. Yeah. So how do these tinkering activities inspire this collective creativity? Yeah. yeah. So I, I've noticed like from running a lot of these different kinds of tinkering workshops um, that, that oftentimes ideas kind of emerge in a group And we try to design these group experiences so that if an idea that's interesting pops up, it's very easy for it to become kind of contagious uh, and spread through the group. Because, you know, if something cool happens, then you're next to somebody when they, they sort of invent something interesting, then why not? Why shouldn't you be able to kind of explore it as well? And one of the times that this idea really emerged in a strong way for me uh, was actually at the 20, I think it was 2016 Maker Fair at Doc One Library, where I actually am doing a lot of my PhD work. We were doing a drawing machines workshop without solar energy, just with batteries. And I saw this woman there. She was sitting and sort of sorting out these pens that were on the table. She wasn't making her machine do anything. She was just doing this in the midst of all these other kids, kind of these little buzzing machines going around making crazy drawings. 
And I watched her for a while and eventually I sort of was curious and I asked her, so, you know, what are you doing? Why aren't you sort of playing with it? Why are you just sorting pens? And she said, well, I'm a graphic designer. And so what's really important to me is that I want to find out what are the color, what's the color palette that I want to use for my machine before I get going. And that I thought was a really cool idea. And it was an idea. It was like, as, as she explained it to me, I thought, wow, it's so amazing that this idea comes from this diverse group. Is there some way we can utilize that? So we could maybe capture this idea highlight it for the rest of the group and say, hey, you know, you could choose to choose a color palette and it might actually make the drawings better. And then see if the group then's kind of approach to this exploration evolves. So, so can we capture the good ideas that emerge in any kind of tinkering process out of individual work, but share them in the group so that they then lead to the group kind of having a more sophisticated idea of what it can create so that new and interesting things could emerge. So that was sort of the, the basis of this idea is that, okay, well, if a group has a kind of intelligence of its own, how do we document, capture these moments, and then feed them forward? Not even necessarily um, for the people who are in the room at the same time. Maybe we're capturing and documenting these different ideas and then giving them to the next group of participants that come in later and see, you know, do they build on them? So that if we started a, an interesting tinkering workshop, say on Monday, and then we ended it on Friday, you could actually see some sort of progression of insights that are cumulative, such that the, the kinds of designs that emerge on Friday are maybe more complex or maybe even more interesting in, in some way. And then I, I hear multiple things. So one, the, this approach is really about the process and not products. So what's happening, what learning is going on. And then the other thing, you mentioned the word of documentation. Yeah. And having worked with you before, um, I'm assuming, and I think I know that it grounds itself in the Reggio Emilia documentation approach. That's right. Um, can you say a bit more what making learning visible is about or what, what this documentation approach is that you're using? Yeah, sure. So, um, so Reggio Emilia first is a small, is a, is a city in uh, central Italy, uh, in the, sort of the north central part of it. That's really world famous for its approach to early childhood pedagogy. So there are Reggio Emilia inspired preschools and kindergartens all around the world. Um, and they're really known in, for, for, for taking a kind of a, a really unique approach to understanding and articulating the value of what they do. They don't really, they're not very interested in standardized test scores as many people in my home country are. Uh, they're much more interested in trying to actually document in the sense of capturing moments of children's intelligence and creativity um, using photography or video capture or, um, you know, taking notes and pictures of the different kind of artifacts that they make. And what they do is they, they integrate this process of capturing kind of documentation and reflecting on it into every educator in Reggio Emilia's process. So every week they're kind of reviewing, well, here's the, the, the sort of the exploration that this five-year-old was doing with chalk and, and or scissors and paper. And look at the, look at the way, look at what it shows about her insights about the qualities of paper and how this works or the different possibilities of paints and chalk. And then they collect these, these different kinds of documentations uh, into books that are beautiful books. I mean, they're, they're, they're amazing to see. Uh, I recommend anyone who's an educator to, uh, to go to the library or order a, a book from the Reggio Emilia Press because they've published, I think, probably uh, dozens if not hundreds or something of these beautiful collections of, of, of their work, of documentation of children's creativity. And, the, and every time I came to Reggio Emilia, I had the honor of kind of working um, as the liaison to Lego Foundation, between Lego Foundation and the Reggio Children Foundation for some years, um, every time I went there, I would find there's an, another use of documentation that, that never really occurred to me before because it's 
of course, a way to understand what the child is thinking and how their mind is sort of putting together and making connections between different ideas. But it's also an incredibly powerful professional development tool. So if you're a teacher um, and you want to know, for example, are we living up to our value of inviting the child to be a protagonist of their own learning experience, which is a core value of the Reggio tradition, then you will find out if you're living up to that value by looking at the documentation. That's like really where the evidence is and where the rubber meets the road. And so it's also a way for educators to refine their practice, to try to think about different ways of proposing different activities that are creative to the children that they're working with to enable them to, to go as far as they can to develop uh, you know, interesting projects and, and also their, their knowledge and their understanding of things. So documentation has been a really inspiration for me. And so in my work, I've really wanted to figure out how do we how do we use how do we develop documentation as an approach that practitioners like librarians or other educators could use as a strategy not only for articulating and understanding what the learner is is experiencing and understanding in their own work, but also as a way to advocate for um, for this kind of creative open-ended learning. Um, I think that documentation is a great way of articulating to other stakeholders like the parents of the children. Uh, or, or, you know, certainly stakeholders in government that look, you know, when this child had this insight or when they, they, they had this creative idea or they developed this amazing project, you know, that's, that's what we see as valuable because that, that ability to create your own exploration, to develop your own knowledge through a project, I think is one that, that we could do a better job um, as adults, as educators at supporting so that the, this open-ended inquiry is, is more of what children are, and are prepared to do as they grow into adults, because so much of, I think, quality work in any field has to do with, well, how do you navigate an open-ended provocation? And I think what I've, I've learned by um, being in Reggio recently with you is um, it's not a, not a summative process. I think um, it can seem like that because you see these beautiful books and posters, yeah. but all the documentation feeds back into the classroom. Yeah. Rather than being so you document and then that stays, but rather it constantly creates an interaction with the children, sharing it back with them, seeing how they respond to things. Yep. Um, yeah, and I think that one of the things that always blows my mind when I get to go into a Reggio-inspired classroom is how beautifully the teachers are kind of not, not necessarily working with every child individually because, you know, they're limited by resources too. There's only a few teachers in that classroom. But they're also trying to understand and and help to articulate what the group itself is thinking about and interested in. And so a lot of the, the projects that emerge out of that process really come from the group's curiosity, not necessarily. And the individuals often fits in with the group's curiosity. Um, so there's not necessarily a conflict between the individual and the group. Often it, it kind of goes together beautifully. Um, but how to do that is just such an art. It's an amazing thing to see. And you work with a, so we know now a bit about what your PhD project is about, but you have a very special, I think, situation of how you work. So you have a collaboration between Aarhus Public Library, mm -hmm. um, which is quite an innovative space already, the Interacting Mind Center is Aarhus University, and you also work with a group of library practitioners. Yes, that's right, yeah. So early on, it's clear that that to design and develop these kinds of environments where the children are the protagonists of their own learning, um, you really need a kind of a, it's almost like a, a group to think with, because I think one person uh, would be hard pressed to sort of understand everything that's involved. And especially, you know, I'm not a, I'm not from Denmark, so I think there's a lot about the culture that I still have to learn, even though I've been here some time. 
So the Creative Learning Research Group uh, was formed um, about a year ago now out of um, different educators working in Doc One Library um, to uh, explore and expand the understanding of what a library can be. And so there's already a lot of beautiful activities, uh, both for children in terms of craft activities, but also for adults in terms of making activities that are happening there. But they um, tended to sort of be all on their own different department in some ways. And with creative learning, I think the, the value of it from an educational, from a pedagogical perspective often is that, you know, when you get together people with these diverse um, diverse viewpoints and experiences, if we get a common language and create a common language to talk about, for example, how to design an open-ended constraint so that every kid can find something that's interesting, kind of a wide walls, or how to lower the floor on an activity, it really is valuable to sort of, for even for somebody who's working with making and 3D printers, to hear how does uh, uh, somebody who works with children age five, six, seven do this kind of work. And so we've been having these reflective conversations and beginning to use documentation to try to understand different workshops that we run together and figure out if we can articulate what are our primary research questions? What is it we want to understand um, that makes sense uh, you know, in our environment to sort of drive uh, the possibilities of what the library can be forward? So we've been exploring, for example, a lot about um, this concept handlemol, which emerged in conversation, which really just means in Danish, um, the courage to try something new. We find that not everyone who comes to an open-ended creative workshop is just so stoked and excited about what it is that's going on <laughs> that they're ready to dive in. Some of them feel like, oh no, I'm not a creative person. They feel kind of intimidated. And so the conversation around handlemol was, okay, well, what do we do with people who maybe feel scared by the possibilities of, you know, what should I do with this? It's a blank piece of paper. I don't know what to do. And so we've talked a lot about different design principles of kind of providing constraints that open up as they gain more and more confidence or different kinds of interventions down at the level of, you know, if somebody's really not feeling very confident, you can actually kind of walk them through some things and just sort of be with them and almost lend them some of your confidence in the process so that they can then get started. And, and what we find then is once people get started, generally, if there's an aesthetic component to the creative experience, whether it's drawing or playing with light, they kind of fall in love with it and then they forget to be afraid. So how do we support those people who don't have a lot of confidence to get to that that state where they they fall in love with what it is that they're tinkering with and they forget to feel afraid? I'm just thinking about a, a house and a little staircase that leads you to the uh, low floors. So kind of a small step in to get comfortable. Yeah. Is this um, practitioner research that you're describing, is this also how you see yourself in your research? You are a former practitioner, now researcher in, in, in the middle space there. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, in some ways, kind of define... Um, a strategy, a methodology, uh, and a theoretical background for for becoming a practitioner or researcher in the context of the library. So, so my research is very much grounded in, you know, the activities that we try to run as often as we can. Of course, Corona has made that a little bit difficult these past few years, but we're still trying to run as many as we can. Um, so that so that I think that that other practitioners could use this as a model to describe, well, you know, I may not be able to prove in a laboratory that if I create these kinds of conditions, this particular idea will emerge. But nonetheless, I think we can generalize to the level of saying, well, we know how to um, to create an environment that supports, for example, people without a lot of creative confidence or handlemol. And, and that really, to become rigorous, I think it has to be something that you do a lot, but that's the great thing about practitioners is they often do these activities a lot. 
um, and they, they have the chance to refine their thinking and kind of be in a dialogue with theory, if you know what I mean. So that's something that is really, really valued in Reggio Emilia and I think really has the potential to be incredibly useful in contexts, both for librarians, but also for any educator to really kind of have a dialogue between theory and practice. And, and documentation really is kind of the, I guess you'd say the, the, the artifact that comes out of the practice that then informs your, your thinking about theory and creates the conditions for that dialogue. So, so yes, I'm trying to kind of create this PhD as, um, I guess you would say, an example of what practitioner research could be and, and ways that it could be useful. Um, so in a way, you're developing didactical tools for all of us to use to, to further that. Yeah. What are your theoretical inspirations? You've, you mentioned Papad before and Mitch Resnick. Is yeah. there anyone else? Yeah. So um, I'm, a, I'm a really big fan of Donald Schoen's work. And Donald Schoen um, was actually, I think, at MIT as well uh, as, as Seymour Papert around that time. And he was doing a lot of work in the 70s and 80s. Um, he wrote a book called The Reflective Practitioner, which I just think is a fantastic book. And he he often would talk about the way that um, the the way that the way that a professional would be using kind of an ongoing conversation with different ideas in order to arrive at a solution to a problem that would work well or be beautiful. So that one of the examples he gives in his book is um, is talking about architects and their relationship to the sketchpad. So the architect might kind of go to a site, sort of see what's there. They, they kind of talk to the client, understand how big of a house is it that, that should be built, et cetera. Uh, but then they start to go into their sketchbook and they're sort of proposing, okay, well, if you build it out of brick, we could be like this. And then they sort of imagine how would that fit in this context? No, that one wouldn't work. So I'll make a different sketch. But basically they go through a process where, you know, they're building in their minds or at least in their sketchbooks, 20 to 30 different houses. And then they're trying to evaluate them. And out of that, out of that kind of, um, I guess you'd say, imaginative, speculative process comes some sort of insight about what would make the right house for this place, at least the one that they want to propose. And then, of course, there's a longer, more iterative process of them proposing it to the to the builders, et cetera, and going through that. But, but I think that's an, I guess you'd say it was sort of the professional equivalent of tinkering in many ways, because... Well, Donald Schoen called it a conversation with the material. You're actually trying out ideas, imagining how it would work, getting feedback from that process, and then refining your ideas. It's a different way of knowing, a different way of knowledge creation than, than the one that I think we're traditionally used to thinking about happening in school where you're reading books or listening to lectures. But it's a very important one, and he, he did a beautiful job of articulating how it works. And so many of the different um, design considerations that I'm bringing to the work of building tools Uh, for children to explore ideas like sustainable energy, et cetera, are kind of informed by that work. And what inspires you about solar energy? Yeah, well, it just seems that we're in a in a time when uh, it's it's really past time for us to figure out how are we going to figure out a way to live sustainably. How are we gonna gonna work with this planet in such a way that that works for it and for us? And as you know, there's a big climate crisis going on, and. I think that a lot of people feel kind of paralyzed in a way that like they just don't know what to do. Uh, and they're kind of waiting for an expert to kind of come and give us the solution. But I don't really think that's that's the the approach that we need to take right now. I mean, of course, we need to listen to experts and, and see what's recommended and consider how we can make changes in government and different structures as well. But I also want people to be involved in the inquiry themselves in a kind of concrete way. And so the, the idea of playing with the sun as a kind of research atelier 
is to try to figure out how do we create this context where people can ask authentic research questions. So for example, I think a question that we could all be asking ourselves is, you know, what is enough, this concept of enough? Um, enough means that, that you have all that you need and that you're satisfied in many ways. But especially if we live in the developed world, um, we're, we're actually probably using more than enough in many different ways. And we need to figure out, well, how can we have a conversation with that to find out, you know, what are the really important aspects and what are the different experiments we could do? So an experiment that my family and I have, have tried out is um, saying, okay, uh, on this this day, we're going to just leave the lights off. We're not going to use any of the electric lights in the house. And instead, we're going to experiment with what is it like just to use rechargeable solar lamps that we've left out in the sun? You know, what is it that we miss? It's not necessarily that we're going to convince ourselves to just only use these little rechargeable lights, but it does kind of give you a new way of understanding what is the problem and how much power do we actually need really to be satisfied. And it turns out to be very little less than you would think. So that's one way of experimenting with that. I, I could imagine this atelier, as we as we develop it, could be a host for different kinds of shared research questions from citizens as they emerge. I find it very suiting that um, the moment we talk about the implications of the world, uh, we get some hammering sounds in, in this living room <laughs> podcast studio. That is, uh, yeah, well, how that's how you know it's authentic. So it's, yeah. <laughs> but... Um, Kind of one thing that I would find really interesting, so we didn't really talk about play yet. So what is your understanding of play in the context of your work and, and maybe playfulness to, yeah. to kind of stretch that term a bit? Yeah, I really think of play as a, as a means of inquiry. Um, and I think it's a crucial one. Uh, that's really important. I think that, you know, if you enjoy walking, <laughs> probably your ability to actually walk emerged somewhat out of a process of playing around with your body when you were a very small child, right? Um, so it's a way to kind of get to know things and understand things. And uh, and it's one that we tend to undervalue in, in many ways. Um, and so, so much of what I'm trying to design in terms of toolkits and, and ways of inquiring around things are is really how to how to inquire around them playfully, how to play with a different idea or how to play with a different material and see what emerges out of that out of that process. And it's also, you know, that's the the way that that kind of encounter um, can generate new ideas. And of course, we're not going to follow every idea that that comes up in our minds in any given hour or two as we're playing with them. But sometimes the good ideas come up and you go, ah, that's something I should play with some more. And so the ability to sort of play around, see what emerges, follow the next idea that emerges that's interesting, and play with it, I think is, a, is actually sort of similar to the process of design. And I think if, if designers are honest, they'll say that much of what they do is playing around with things. And so that's, a, that's just simply a capability I think that uh, more people should have access to. Is tinkering a facilitated play that is not necessarily overly structured? So is, this, is there in between, yeah. between um, agency-driven unstructured, self-directed lie mm -hmm. um, and a bit more organized kind of game-based game, game -based design yeah. play. And in the middle, there's some tinkering because it is facilitated. There's, you're setting the frame, you're giving the environment of scratch. Yep. Um, you're setting the workshop, someone, you, you're giving the space and the environment for people to interact in. Yeah, yeah. And it's definitely constrained. I mean, you know, even Lego bricks are constrained. Like you think you can build anything, but generally you probably want to build things that are kind of chunky and square. <laughs> the same with Minecraft. So there's definitely constraints involved in it and, and tinkering. Um, Seymour Papert, I've often talked about it as a, 
a strategy for creating learning environments was a strategy of creating micro worlds, meaning that there are not as many possibilities as there, as there are in the real world. There are definitely constraints in there. But those constraints actually serve to make it possible to prototype new ideas more quickly and to explore different possibilities and to, to have an encounter that's open-ended uh, with certain powerful ideas. And he was very much interested in creating these environments for children to encounter powerful ideas in mathematics. Uh, and I think programming in Scratch still do, do that as well, although maybe it's a, a little bit more broadened set of goals. Uh, so what is your hope for education, if, if you take a step back? Yeah. So I come from a family where several, uh, like my brother and sister, were, were both entirely homeschooled or unschooled, really, as it was called at the time. I think that definition's been moving, so I'm not sure that we'd call that unschooling today. Um, but it certainly was called that uh, back when they were kids. And really, I still share a lot of those values um, in the sense that unschooling is really motivated by giving the, the child the chance to, to have a democratic say in what it is that they're learning, what it is that they're encountering. And one of the things that I really struggle with, with um, education and in, in the way that it's framed in school is the idea of a curriculum, really, that says, you know, everybody should know more or less the same thing. And it's sort of accepted without question in many ways. You can see it, you know, okay, well, we can maybe tune the curriculum in terms of what everyone should know, but it's, it's almost axiomatic that, that every kid should know almost all the same things. And I think maybe that, that is a model that made sense um, maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago to some extent. I think it makes even less sense now if, than it ever has, um, in part because we live in the information age and there's just so much to learn. And one way of sorting out, well, what is it I'm going to learn? What, I'm, what am I not going to learn? So that is, is simply to, to ask the, the learner, well, what is it that you're interested in? <laughs> And, I, and I'd like to, to see more progressive educational opportunities that are asking kids, well, we're going to support you in, 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 in doing some rigorous learning where there are expectations about outcomes. You have to, you have to make a project that's meaningful to you, that, that meets a certain kind of standard of quality. But I think we should give a lot of the say of what that project is and what the quality of the learning is to you as the learner. And that's a way of sort of sorting out and dealing with this sort of overabundance of information that we're all trying to swim in. And when you think about it, this is not that radical of an idea because, you know, any adult that you encounter, it will have specialized in some way. You know, we don't go to our um, podiatrist and say, yes, uh, you know, I want you to fix my feet, but you, you should know as much as a, a nuclear physicist, right? Because we all have the same education. No, of course, we understand people need to specialize at some point. And I think that, that we really are doing a disservice to children when we kind of enforce a generalized curriculum that is, frankly, just overly full. You know, I mean, that we're asking children to learn more than ever before in so many ways, um, and, and rather than allowing them to specialize at an earlier stage. So in some ways, tinkering is, um, I see it as a way to enable children to develop the ability to specialize, to follow an interest to explore a certain realm of possibilities and gather not all information, but the contextual information that's relevant to what they're doing, that is also a way of navigating life in the information age that I think we need to offer to children more rather than saying, you know, here's the test that's multiple choice and you have to memorize all these facts, which I think has been more or less proven are going to just evaporate out of their minds within, you know, 24 to 48 hours after they've memorized them and written down the answer on the test. So I'm an advocate of, of more um, 
open-ended, more progressive models of education, which um, sadly, really, I feel haven't really been uh, adopted in the way that they, I think, could have been even since the time of John Dewey when when they first emerged. Uh, and then in your concept of collective creativity, in reading some of your work, you talk about the adjacent possible and how if we work together, it creates these adjacent possibles. Mm -hmm. Could you say a bit more where this idea came from? Because I think it fits into this idea of how we move on as a society in a, in a bigger space. Yeah. So the idea of the adjacent possible emerged from a biologist called Stuart Kaufman, I think in the 70s and 80s, if I'm not mistaken. And essentially he was observing that um, the way that, that evolution seems to proceed is sort of stepwise movements from what is now to just one step next door, but then that's the now, and you take one more step, and then you're in someplace completely different. And so it, it's, it's an idea that I think is really powerful, both for explaining in biology um, how so these small step-by-step -step movements lead to really revolutionary changes. But it also works, I think, in many ways for design, for cultural evolution. Um, and I'm interested in exploring it as a model for that. So just to give an example that Kaufman mentioned, he talks a little bit about the swim bladder in one of his papers. The swim bladder is the, the part of a fish that allows them to kind of control their buoyancy so they can kind of, you know, be wherever they want to be in the water column, however many meters deep they want to be. And the thinking is that that evolved really from a, a kind of lungfish that was using this sort of air pouch to, to breathe to some extent. And, but one step away from that, the adjacent possible, is the swim bladder, right? And so when that happened, when they started to use it instead of as a way of breathing, but as a way of controlling buoyancy, suddenly a huge new realm for fish opened up some 300 million years ago, I think it was. Um, and, and that was sort of a revolutionary change. And he uses that as an argument to say that you're really never going to be able to predict the future because these adjacent possibles... They, they not only are they innovative for whatever it is that's doing the innovation at the time, but they also change the entire whole ecosystem in many ways. And so when it comes to, you know, the world of design, you can look at other examples of adjacent possible. So before there was the post-it note, there was, you know, paper and pieces of tape and people were taping things on walls to each other. And then one step away from that is, well, what if we integrate the tape into the paper? Now we have the post-it note. And the post-it note, in turn, allows a lot of different possibilities, which really weren't kind of practical beforehand. You can start to use them in design meetings where you're sort of moving around the clusters of different ideas and reorganizing them and retaping them. That kind of became possible out of that. Now, that's an adjacent possible, I guess you'd say, from the post-it note. And really, when, when you think about collective creativity as a kind of a, a group of people who are exploring a realm of possibilities or a research question, say, about the environment, et cetera, um, what they kind of are doing is, is they're exploring an adjacent possible. Okay, so here we are right now. We have in our houses, we have dryers and, you know, maybe they're more efficient. Some are more efficient than others. For example, an adjacent possible is, well, is there some way we could store heat energy from the sun with like a, a black painted box that we put on the roof and then sort of pipe that heat down into the dryer so it doesn't have to use quite so much electricity to, um, to, to, to generate as much heat as it needs to dry the clothes. So that's just sort of one, one step next door that we could try that. And so if we imagine kind of a group in the library or anyway, anywhere of designers who are going to say, yeah, let's play with this different model. You, if you have a way of doing this exploration of adjacent possibles and mapping them in some way, then I think it creates this possibility for interesting revolutionary change of the sort that 
uh, a lot of people could be involved in and in exploring, you know, whether it's with the dryer in their house or maybe it's more about how to, how to use less electricity in the lights. If you get into this inquiry and you identify these different adjacent possibles and share them, then you have this possibility of cross-pollination that I think is exciting. So kind of wrapping our little episode up and getting people a little takeaway, what would you want to be the endpoints that people can take away for themselves and then play with those adjacent possibles essentially and come up with their own extensions and thinking? Yeah, wow. There's a wonderful quote from David Graeber that's coming to mind and I'm not sure if I can um, if I can recall it verbatim, but essentially what he says is that... Um, We're making up this world day by day. We're, we're sort of making up the rules. We're propagating rules that were maybe handed down to us, but we're making it up. And that means that we can change it. And I think that's a really important idea for us to, to reckon with and to get comfortable with in some ways at this time in human evolution when there's you know huge looming crises. We can make it be another way. And one of the ways of doing that, I think, is to set an intention around an exploration, even in your own home. You know, can I figure out a way to use the dishwasher less? Or, you know, can I figure out a way to decrease our energy consumption? And can I talk with other people who are interested in this as well and play around with the idea? Can we play or tinker towards some sort of concrete solutions where we are actually the ones doing the, the meaningful change that we want to see happen? Um, It's not as though that that's going to solve things single-handedly and we don't need massive political change. Of course we do. But this mode of inquiry I find to be really important. And in many ways, you can say historically, a lot of the good ideas that we all depend on now kind of emerged out of just groups of people having conversations, reflecting on things, trying things out, prototyping different things, having more reflective conversations, essentially traversing a realm of adjacent possible until they find one that's better than the one we're in now. So what I want people to take away from this is, is that, you know, this is something that anyone can engage with. And, and I think it's something that we can provide to children to get more comfortable with. And that will be uh, of benefit to them when they're adults. But it's also something that we can do right now. And we need to. Uh, if people want to continue the conversation with you, where would they find you on the, on the web in the world? Yeah, you can find my website at amosamos.net. So it's www.myfirstnametwice.net. And, uh, and there's contact information on there. Um, please feel free to reach out. Uh, we'll also link that in the show notes so people can follow up with you. But uh, thank you for joining in. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. This podcast is edited and produced by Kiersey Tilk, Anno Quentin Vermier, and Savannah Scholz. Music by Simon Kag. The podcast is funded by the Interacting Mind Center Seed Funding Grant. Visit the Interacting Mind Center website to gain access to show notes and further information at interactingminds.au.dk.